Good morning. Welcome to Potomac Hills Presbyterian Church. My name is Frank Wong. I'm uh, the associate pastor here, and uh, we're in the middle of a series on the book of Job, if you have forgotten. We've had two Sundays away from this series due to Easter and due to the fact that neither Dave nor I were here last week. Um, You may also remember that we are absolutely flying through the book of Job. We only have four more sermons left looking at a man named Job. This morning, if you would turn with me to the book of Job, we have six chapters to go through, chapters 32 to 37. And since it is quite long, and if I just read it, we would be here till like tomorrow, uh, we'll be summarizing and taking it as we go along. But first, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father God, as we come to these passages looking at uh, this young man named Elihu, Lord, we pray that you would open our eyes to see our need, our great need for you to speak, that you would stop our mouths uh, when it is not time for us to speak. But Lord, I pray that most of all you would show us, Jesus, that you would reveal our sin, that we might turn uh, from it unto you, that we might love you and be more like you, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. So, uh, if you've been counting, which I, you probably haven't been counting, I've been at Potomac Hills for almost seven years. It'll be seven years in August. Now, when I got here, I was eager, impulsive, and very, very, very sure of myself. I know, a lot has changed, right? <laughs> Um, but early on, uh, my first year here, I wasn't even technically a pastor yet. I hadn't gone through the ordination process, and you all walked with me uh, through, that process, through that process, trusting that I'd passed, and look here, I've passed. And then uh, you stuck with me uh, as I've grown and hopefully matured just a little bit over the years. And while many of you can look back over the years that I've been here and uh, can point out probably very small ways that I've changed. Um, I'll tell you that the elders have probably had the best vantage point to watch me grow and mature over the years. And I want to tell you about a time where I, and probably the elders, wished that I would have just shut up. Okay? So, set the stage. We're at a session meeting. I've just gotten here. Uh, We're discussing something or other. I can't remember. Um, I had just gotten here, wasn't ordained, had no vote, um, and yet I felt the need to express my opinion on almost every topic that we discussed that night, at length, no no less. And I went home that evening, um, after the the meeting had gone long predictably, um, I went home kind of smug and satisfied that I had helped clarify and direct the session towards wise and godly decisions. It's worked out well for me the next morning when Dr. Dave pulled me aside in the office and gently said something to the effect of, "Uh, you know, you talked a lot last night. And instantly, my perspective on how last night had gone shifted. And I realized that I had shot my mouth off. Uh, Yeah, I, I guess I did. That probably wasn't helpful, was it? No. No, Frank, it was not. 
<laughs> you probably tacked an hour on to our meeting. Oh, huh. well, I guess I'll keep that in mind moving forward. You do that, Frank. You do that, thanks. <laughs> and I think that's what we get here in Job chapter 32 through 37. Elihu bursts onto the scene from nowhere and gives his two cents on Job's situation. But like me, he doesn't give two cents. He gives six full chapters of exposition. And so let's strap in, because there's a lot for us to cover this morning, and we've got to move. So let's start by figuring out who Elihu is in the first place. Elihu is the only chapter, or the only character in the whole book with a Hebrew name and with a genealogy. Even Job and his friends don't get that. We also know that Elihu is significantly younger than Job, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. And so he says so in his introduction at the start of chapter 32. Look with me at verse 4. Now Elihu, who had waited to speak to Job because they were older than he. And Elihu is afforded four whole chapters more than any of the other friends. Furthermore, his speeches come at a pivotal time in the book. Finally finished are the three rounds of dueling speeches between Job and his friends. We've been going around and around and around since chapter 4. Since chapter 4. And it finally concluded with Job's lengthy speech covering chapters 26 to 31. At the end of that speech are the words... The words of Job are ended. Finally, the counsel of man has ceased. Now would be the expected time for God to step in, straighten everything out, and to either condemn or vindicate Job for his response to his suffering. Job has been crying out for answers, and so we expect the Lord to speak now. But instead, Elihu seems to pop onto the scene to deliver a series of scathing addresses to Job. Look with me at uh, chapter 32, verses 1 through 5, and then jumping down to 17 to 20. So these three men ceased to answer Job, because he was righteous in his own eyes. Then Elihu, the son of Barachel, the Buzite of the family of Ram, burned with anger. He burned with anger at Job because he justified himself rather than God. He burned with anger also at Job's three friends because they had found no answer, though they had declared Job to be in the wrong. Now Elihu had waited to speak to Job because they were older than he. And when Elihu saw that there was no answer in the mouth of the three, these three men, he burned with anger. And then jumping down to 17, this is Elihu speaking. I also will answer with my share. I also will declare my opinion. For I am full of words. The spirit within me constrains me. Behold, my belly is like wine that has no vent, like new wineskins ready to burst. I must speak that I might find relief. I, may, I must open my lips to answer. And so Elihu isn't just young and popping onto the scene at a pivotal point, but he comes with a burning passion to defend the Lord. He thinks that Job's words over the last oh, 30 or so chapters are an affront to God, and we can't really blame him for his zeal. Job's words, hopefully and probably, about the perceived injustice of God have and should 
make us profoundly uncomfortable. He really toes the line between genuine heartfelt lament and angry, insubordinate self-righteousness. Even the text there in verse 1, here in chapter 32, gives us pause. Job was righteous in his own eyes. In the Bible, you don't ever want to be described as righteous in your own eyes. And so Elihu is eager and angry. Four times in five verses, Elihu is described as angry. Unfortunately, I think that Elihu might have been just a little bit too angry. I think that anger keeps him from connecting to Job properly, as we will see in the coming chapters. So that's Elihu, young, angry, full of zeal for the Lord. But what does he say? Well, after being annoyed and angry at Job for justifying himself, Elihu proceeds to justify himself of why he's talking at all for about a chapter and a half, which leads us to the middle part of chapter 33. Uh, to get the content of his first speech. So chapter 33, we're going to look at every chapter. So his four speeches, which would be chapter 33, then 34, then 35, and then 36 and 37 go together. So chapter 33, what does he say in chapter 33? It is there that Elihu takes issue with Job's insistence that God doesn't speak to him. Look at verses 12 to 19 of chapter 33. Behold, in this you are not right. I will answer you, for God is greater than man. Why do, you, why, do you, uh, why do you contend against him, saying, he will answer none of man's words? For God speaks in one way and in two, though man does not perceive it. In a dream, in a vision of the night, when deep sleep falls on men, when they slumber on their beds, then he opens the ears of men and terrifies them with warnings. Then he may turn, us, he may turn man aside from his deed, Conceal pride from a man, he keeps back his soul from the pit, his life from perishing by the sword. Man is also rebuked with pain on his bed and with continual strife in his bones. And so Elihu contends that God does speak. He speaks through dreams and visions, warnings, and through suffering. Job, don't you see? God is speaking, speaking to you through your suffering. He is not silent, but it is you who are not hearing. Even the angel mediator that is mentioned in verse 23, is a rare occurrence. Only one out of a thousand experience this mediation. And even then, there is a ransom to be paid, a cost for deliverance from the pit. The pitiful sinner is saved from a horrible fate, but not before his acknowledgement that he deserved it. And so the problem isn't God. Rather, it's Job's stubborn refusal to acknowledge his sin and the Lord's call on his life to repent. In the next chapter, chapter 34, Elihu takes issue with Job saying that God is unjust. Look with me at chapter 34, verses 5 through 12. For Job has said, I am in the right, and God has taken, me, taken away my right. In spite of my right, I am counted a liar. My wound is incurable, though I am without transgression. What man is like Job, who drinks up scoffing like water, who travels in company with evildoers and walks with evil men? For he has said, it profits a man nothing that he should delight in the Lord. Therefore, hear me, you men of understanding. Far be it from God that he should do wickedness and from the Almighty that he should do wrong. For according to the work of a man, he will repay him. And according to his ways, he will make it befall him. Of a truth, God will not do wickedly and the Almighty will not pervert justice. And so Elihu again asserts the justice of God, sure that the Lord will repay men for their wickedness. 
And so Job is wicked for questioning the justice of God. Look a little later in the chapter to verse 26 and then to 35 to 37. He, that is God, strikes them for their wickedness in a place for all to see. Job speaks without knowledge. His words are without insight. Would that Job, be, were, would that Job were tried to the end because his, he answers like wicked men for he adds rebellion to his sin. He claps his hands among us and multiplies his words against God. In chapter 35, keeping moving on to his third speech, Elihu is on a roll at this point. And so he continues to condemn Job in chapter 35. There, Elihu takes issue with Job's justification of himself. To show you how he says this would mean reading the whole chapter, so I'll just summarize instead. In verses 1 through 8, Elihu thinks Job's view of God is too low. Elihu sees God as detached and uninterested, unmoved by the sin or innocence of humans. And so God is going to do what God is going to do, and who are you going to say, who are you to say otherwise? And then in verses 9 through 16, Elihu gets back on the condemnation train to say that the cries of the oppressed aren't heard by God because they don't actually cry out to God for help in their pride. These people are too prideful so that when they do cry out, they aren't crying out to God, and so God can't be bothered to listen to them because they're not asking him anyways. And so Elihu's point is this, what did you expect, Job? You haven't cried out to God truly, and so why should God pay attention to you at all? And then in chapters 36 to 37, we get finally with attention to the greatness and highness of God already in focus, Elihu finishes by pontificating on God's greatness and majesty, starting at chapter 36, verses 5 to 12, and then moving to chapter 37, verses 1 through 5, and then 14, and then 24 to 20. Just follow along. It's on the screen behind you, right? Behold, God is mighty and does not despise any. He is mighty in strength of understanding. He does not keep the wicked alive, but gives the afflicted their right. He does not withdraw his eyes from the righteous, but with kings on the throne. He sets them forever, and they are exalted." And if they are bound in chains and caught in the cords of affliction, then he declares to them their word and their transgressions that they are behaving arrogantly. He opens their ears to instruction and commands that they return from iniquity. If they listen and serve him, they complete their days in prosperity and their years in pleasantness. But if they do not listen, they perish by the sword and die without knowledge." Jumping to chapter 35. At this also my heart trembles and leaps out of its place. Keep listening to the thunder of his voice and the rumbling that comes from his mouth. Under the whole heaven he lets it go and his lightning to the corners of the earth. After it, he, his voice roars, he thunders with his majestic voice and he does not restrain the lightnings when his voice is heard. God thunders wondrously with his voice. He does great things that we cannot comprehend. Hear this, O Job, stop and consider the wondrous works of God. The Almighty, we cannot find him. He is great in power, justice, and abundant righteousness. He will not violate. Therefore, men fear him. He does not regard any who are wise in their own conceit. So what do we see? Here again is the doctrine of retribution, that God will repay in this lifetime evil for evil, and good for good. 
God will not fail to bring to ruin sinners and blessings to those who are righteous. But more than that, God is mighty and far beyond man. And so in this, Elihu actually agrees with Job back in chapter 28, saying that wisdom is found in the fear of the Lord. Only Elihu is suggesting that Job doesn't fear the Lord and thus has no wisdom. Now, there's much more we could say from Elihu's speeches. These are just like a 100,000-foot view, right? These are the big themes of his speeches. So now, what do we think of Elihu? What do we think of his, him and his passion for the Lord, that zeal, that anger that we started with, now that we have heard what he says? And I think that I would say that Elihu is actually right in a vacuum, but not in the context of this book. As I read through these chapters, I find myself saying, yes, but a lot. You see, friends, much of what Elihu says is right doctrinally, but it isn't applicable specifically to Job. Let's take his argument in chapter 33, where he contends that God does, not, does in fact speak to Job. Well, Elihu is what Elihu says is true. God did, in speak, did indeed speak to men through visions, dreams, warnings, and through suffering. He still sometimes speaks through, to, uh, through suffering to us. And yet we know from chapters 1 and 2 that Job's specific suffering is not God speaking to him as a rebuke. God himself has made it clear that Job is blameless for the suffering that he is enduring. And it keeps going in chapter 34 where Elihu recounts the doctrine of retribution. Yes, doing evil can bring calamity. Doing good can bring blessings. But it isn't a direct connection or causality. In chapter 35 and really, and really in 36, Elihu spends a lot of time playing up the, trans- the transcendent greatness of God. And yes, that is true. God is great. God is mighty. God is majestic. God is wholly other in a way that we cannot begin to comprehend. He is untouchable and unknowable in that way. That's all true. But that's not the whole character of God as he's revealed in the Bible. As you you see, God isn't a detached, disinterested God who is unmoved by the sin and righteousness of humans, as Elihu suggests in chapter 35. That's readily apparent in both Elihu's own arguments and also in the Bible. Think back to chapter 33, where um, Elihu contends that God does speak to Job. If God is so transcendent and as transcendent and as detached and as unmoved as Elihu says he is in chapter 35, then why does the Lord bother to speak to Job through suffering at all in chapter 33? Why speak at all? And why would Elihu bother defending God anyways? He's so big, so high, so mighty. What's the point? God, if Elihu is saying God's going to do God anyways, so what's, what does it matter what I do? And then if we look at scripture, how many times do we see that the Lord is engaged with his creation? That he sees what's going on and he does something about it. Think about the stories of Jonah, David and Bathsheba, and the deliverance of the Hebrews out of the house of slavery in Egypt. 
In each instance, God hears and sees injustice and does something about it. And all of that is to say this. Elihu isn't pointing to a full picture of who God is, but rather is picking and choosing which aspects to highlight as a means to bash Job over the head. This is weaponized doctrine that does not seek to help Job, but rather to show how righteous and right Elihu is. Look with me at chapter 36, verses 1 through 4. And Elihu continued and said, Bear with me a little, and I will show you. For I have yet something to say on God's behalf. I will get my knowledge from afar and ascribe righteousness to my maker, for truly my words are not false, One who is perfect in knowledge is with you. Do you see how self-righteous, self-important Elihu is? He has the audacity to claim that he speaks for God and that he is perfect in knowledge. Wow. I'm confident in myself, but I'm never saying that, right? And so while Elihu is right in a vacuum sometimes, While he is right doctrinally about a lot of things, he misses so much. Unless we forget that he doesn't get all of his doctrine right either. At least twice in the excerpts that I read to you, Elihu shows that he ascribes the doctrine of retribution, which isn't right at all. So, you know, he's not even right on his doctrine. And here's the rub. Here's my main issue with Elihu. It's that he's talking to Job. The same Job that who, who has endured the loss of his vast wealth. The same Job who has lost all ten of his children all at once. He has lost his social standing, his friends, his reputation, and his health. This is a broken and grieving man, and Elihu is supposed to be his friend. Or at the very least, an acquaintance. Who of us would come up to such an obviously broken and suffering person and pop off in anger? This is probably the biggest issue that I have with Elihu. It's that he doesn't confront Job in relationship with him, but rather seems to speak in generalities, platitudes, and stereotypes. In many ways, he's rather dealing with doctrine rather than the person. And don't get me wrong, doctrine is vitally important. Heresy is sinful, okay? But rebuking brothers and sisters in the faith is always done in the context of relationship. Matthew 18 requires us to do our calling out face-to-face, person-to-person, and really heart-to-heart. Our rebukes may be for doctrinal error for doctrinal error, behavioral sin, or corrupted desires, but these rebukes are to come as from the Lord with love, patience, and context. These are meant to reclaim sinners, not to bash people over the head. None of Elihu's words come with comfort and with care. None of these words come seeking to reclaim the sinner. No, these words come with anger. Elihu has taken Job's words challenging God personally for some reason. Job is not speaking to Elihu, so why is Elihu getting upset? He is speaking out of a feeling of offense, and so he lashes out, blasting Job with both barrels, so to speak. 
And the anger that we saw right at the beginning of chapter 32 changes the way that we view his compulsion to speak. This isn't a righteous obligation to speak truth in love. This is an emotional outburst from an immaturity that believes itself to know more than it actually does. How familiar does that sound? Ever scroll through social media comments? Ever watch the news? This kind of response to people around us is commonplace, even within the church. And so what are we left with? We're left feeling the need more than ever for God to speak. The prevailing wisdom of the world as embodied by the friends has failed. And the self-righteous wisdom of a spiritual man as embodied by Elihu has failed. What we need is God himself to enter into Job's experience and to speak. What Job yearns for is for the Lord and nothing else will satisfy And that's what he's going to get moving forward. In the very next chapter, the Lord speaks out of a whirlwind. But for us, we don't usually get a whirlwind. We don't usually get the Lord's presence, boom, there it is, oh my gosh. We certainly don't get the Lord answering our cries for help and understanding out of a whirlwind either. Though we might love that and ask for that. So, for us, how has the Lord spoken? How does the Lord speak to us in our great need? And I think the answer comes from the book of Hebrews, verse, chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Long ago, and at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. We don't have a lot in this passage that points directly to Jesus, but it absolutely points to our need for him. You see, Elihu was right. God is transcendent, glorious, majestic, and just. He is untouchably and unknowably different from us. Theologians call that the aseity of God. He is not dependent on him. Uh, He is not dependent on us, and yet we need him. We were made in his image. We were made for him to glorify him and to enjoy him. And so we need restoration to the intimacy that we had prior to the fall. But we can't do that. We can't make ourselves good enough. We can't do enough good things to outweigh our sin. And so if God truly cares about his creation, he must come to us. He cannot wait for us, but rather he must step into the mess of human life, into the sinfulness and misery of our human condition to save us. And he has. In Jesus, God has spoken. And this is not a, Jesus is not a word of condemnation or rebuke of sin, though we might deserve it richly. He is rather a word of grace and mercy. We who were by nature children of wrath were made alive together with Christ by the great mercy and love of God. It is by grace that we have been saved. Friends, Elihu sees the cross. He sees that the wages of sin are ruin, death, and wrath. He sees the cross, but Job is upon it. But that's not God's story. 
For on that cross, God was pleased to show his great mercy, grace, and love for his people in addition to his great power, authority, justice, and transcendence. Instead of Job on that cross, instead of you and me up there, it's it's God himself in the person of Jesus. This is the word that Job and we yearn to hear. In the midst of our suffering, we have not been left alone, but we have been pursued, embraced, and saved by the mighty arm of Jesus Christ. And so how are we supposed to apply this to our lives? I think that Elihu teaches us to avoid speaking out of indignation, out of offendedness, out of outrage. That makes us not speak with people, but at people. It makes us miss the context of what people actually need and focuses on things, focuses things on the rightness of our own opinions. I think that Elihu teaches us to remember that we need to show a full picture of who God is in every situation. That God is not only righteous, but also merciful. He is not only just, but he's gracious. And when we stand up and speak with zeal for the Lord as we seek to be faithful in this time, place, and culture, we ought to remember that we don't engage against ideas or statements, but with people, with sinners, with the lost. We should see with the eyes of Jesus having compassion on those without a shepherd. Friends, Jesus saw our sin clearly. And for his people, he spoke with gentleness, care, and with a lot of patience. He bore with us when it took a really long time for us to change, and he continues to bear with us. And yet, he still calls us to change for sure. He doesn't let us off that hook. We are to change. That is true. But he is patient with us, and he stays with us even when we fail. He did not leave us nor forsake us, but stepped into our sin that he might be with us and transform us by his presence. Friends, when we feel that urge to speak, to step in, let us first make sure that our words don't caricaturize Jesus, that we don't play up one aspect of who Jesus is at the expense of another aspect of who he is. But rather, we need to give a picture of all of his attributes, a full picture of not only his justice, but also his grace. Not only his zeal for righteousness, but also his love for the lost. Are we calling folks to see Jesus or just bashing others over the head with him? And so let us not be like Elihu popping off in anger and contempt as we are really apt to do. But rather let us draw near to those who makes our blood boil, those who make us profoundly uncomfortable, and those whom we find contemptible. For that is exactly what Jesus did for us. Elihu is a cautionary tale that highlights the great friend that we have in Jesus. He was a friend of sinners. Can the same be said of us? We need to think about that. Let's pray. Father God, we live in a world where outrage is easy. Where popping off feels good. 
where we are convinced at the rightness and the value of our rightness. And Lord, we come to this world often angry at its sinfulness. Angry, righteously, we think, at its brokenness. And yet, Lord, give us a picture of your son who did not come in anger, but came in grace. Lord, we are called to be like your son. And so, Lord, make us people like your son, that we would have zeal for righteousness, but that it would lead us to works of mercy and of grace, that we would have zeal for you and for the truth, and that it would lead us to care. Lord, keep us from the mistake of Elihu. Keep us from popping off, but enable us to truly meet people that need you, that we might show them the presence of Christ through you living within us. Lord, help us see you, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.